Hi, this is Rachel Hine and Heather Levitis, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on The Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for a yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. Stay tuned after the podcast for a brief message from our sponsors. And remember to visit www.theresidentreview.com to study along with our outlines. Today, we'll be continuing our quick hit series on pressure sores. So pressure sores are prolonged pressure above the capillary pressure, which is 32 millimeters of mercury, i.e. bed rest. You can get sacrum, heel, and occiput ulcers from lying down and ischium from sitting. Heather, why don't you take us through the stages and diagnosis of pressure sores? So there are four stages that are used to classify pressure sores. Stage one is described as well-circumscribed sore with non-blanching erythema. The skin is intact, but has a red discoloration for more than one hour after relief of the pressure. Stage two includes partial thickness skin loss. There's a blister or other break in the dermis with or without infection. Stage three is a full thickness skin loss involving subcutaneous tissue down to the muscle fascia. Um, there is subcutaneous destruction into the muscle with or without infection, but it does not go through the fascia. And then stage four goes through muscle to bone and it can have undermining and sinus tracts. These, this is usually what we get called for. Oftentimes there's bony or joint involvement can be infected. And like, like I said, you can also have involvement of muscle. So in terms of relevant diagnoses related to pressure sores, One of the things we want to talk about is chronic osteomyelitis. A bone biopsy is the gold standard for diagnosing chronic osteo. A lot of times we'll get an MRI, which is not quite as good to kind of assess the situation. A gadolinium MRI is better than a white blood cell scan, which is better than a CT or T99 triphasic bone scan. You also want to get ESR and CRP. And then S2, S3 is kind of the highest level at which bony debridement can be performed without risking entry into the dural space. So I'll briefly talk about general treatment for stage one and stage two. This is non-surgical. Most of the time you want to protect a barrier and you want to maintain a moist wound environment in stages three and four debridement is the first thing that you want to consider. So in ulcers with increased white blood cell count or infection, you need to excise the ulcer and excise the bursa and expose bone. Remember that in debridements and ischiectomy will transfer weight to the contralateral side. So a bilateral ischiectomy results in perennial ulcers and can often result in a urethrocutaneous fistula. In patients with joint osteomyelitis, you can use a girdle stone procedure, which is a removal of the femoral head and a vastus lateralis can be used to cover after. So dressings we often use to encourage wound healing. Calcium alginate is one of them, and it's commonly used for exudative wounds. It can absorb large amounts of exudate and it includes You want to change this every 24 hours. Remember that it can provide a moist environment and you should cover with a bio-occlusive dressing. And then remember that we've attested on this, that fibrotic pressure sores respond poorly to negative pressure wound therapy. (laughs) And then we'll have Heather talk a little bit about the reconstruction for uh, pressure ulcers, but remember that diverting colostomies are used in patients with perennial wounds to reduce the fecal soiling. So you want to think about urinary and fecal diversion. So next we'll go ahead and talk about reconstruction. The goal is to design flaps with the possibility for, or potential need for future re-advancement of these flaps. Flap coverage really is only utilized or should be utilized in patients who are optimized for surgery and for their, the greatest chance of success. 
Fasciocutaneous flaps are preferred in ambulatory patients for obvious reasons. You don't want to get muscle involved if you don't have to. So we'll just kind of just go by region of pressure sore. For, so for trochanteric wounds, the kind of flap of choice is the TFL flap. It receives its blood supply from the ascending lateral circumflex artery. It is a Matheson high class one type flap. And you can also potentially use a vastus lateralis for a trochanteric wound. And then for gluteal and ischial wounds, usually you'll use, at least we'll use a VY advancement flap. The gluteal artery flap is good for ischial ulcers. And then for sacral pressure ulcers, you can use a gluteal artery perforator flap. And you want to kind of try to use local flaps if possible. You want to try to avoid bilateral advancement flaps because especially in ambulatory patients, this causes significant morbidity. Um, like I said, you want to avoid the use of muscle in ambulatory patients if possible, but it is okay to use if it's your only option. So for ischial ulcers, you want to, and reconstruction, you want to avoid sitting for three weeks. Then generally you can advance to kind of limited sitting with pressure offloading. And then in, for questions in particular on the exam, sometimes they'll try to trip you up, but you want to make sure that you know what flaps have been used in the past so that you either, you know, can re-advance them or pick something else. So the next flap we'll talk about is the posterior thigh flap. Perforators include the inferior gluteal artery and perforators from the thigh skin. It can be fasciocutaneous or a superiorly based tongue flap. The maximum movement of a posterior thigh flap is about 10 to 12 centimeters. And then, like we kind of said, gluteal thigh or thigh fasciocutaneous flaps are the first option um, or first should be the first choice for ambulatory patients with ischial ulcers. Other things we've been tested on related to optimization include, we want to make sure that these patients have a good intake of protein, which is 1.5 to 3 grams per kilogram per day. And then to ensure flap survival, you can use intrathecal baclofen before and after if your patient has issues with spasticity. So some risk factors for flap dehiscence include a young age of less than 45, history of same-site surgery failure, an albumin value of less than 3.5, a hemoglobin A1C of greater than 6, and a history of ischial reconstruction already. So risk factors for recurrence include paraplegia, age greater than 70, immobility, poor nutrition, low BMI, anemia, and stage renal disease, cerebrovascular disease, a recent hip fracture within three months, again, an ischial wound, a previous pressure ulcer, and a hemoglobin A1C of greater than six. The highest risk of recurrence is the presence of paraplegia in, in patients. The most common cause of death in paraplegic patients with pressure ulcers is chronic amyloidosis and renal failure. All right. So now we'll go over some miscellaneous topics. So autonomic dysreflexia, which we've been tested on can present as headache, hypertension, bradycardia, flushing, sweating, and this can be due to uncontrolled sympathetic response to a stimulus. And it's usually in paraplegics above T6. So stimuli can include bladder distension, rectal distension, musculoskeletal injury, pregnancy, and treatment is to remove the inciting event. So we had a question about a patient that had a full bladder and it was to place a Foley. Administration of succinylcholine in paraplegics may cause hyperkalemia. So remember they have upregulated receptors in the damaged muscles. This will cause peak T waves and you want to treat with a calcium chloride to stabilize cellular membranes and then bicarbon glucose insulin combo to offset the acidosis and bring potassium back intracellularly. 
And then finally, with adults or dependents that come in with decubitus ulcer reconstruction, you want to be on the lookout for elder abuse, um, especially with unexplained bruising or neglect, and you want to report this to Adult Protective Services. All right, so thank you so much for tuning in for our pressure sore talk. I hope you enjoyed it and stay tuned for our next podcast. We would like to thank Allergan for their continued support of our podcast. Allergan Aesthetics is now a part of AbbVie, an international leader in many different therapeutic categories. Many of the topics and therapies we discuss on our podcast are provided by Allergan. They continue to be a leader in the fields of breast reconstruction, abdominal wall reconstruction, medical aesthetics, and much more. Additionally, they are dedicated to supporting the education of plastic surgery residents and plastic surgeons across the country.